now that the 21-22 basketball season is in the books, staff writer Sam Downton and I are going to do a season review for both the men's and women's team. Sam, how you doing, guy? Oh, doing very great, Chris. Thank you for uh, having me on the podcast once again. I think the last time I was here, you know, it was so cold outside. You could see the steam from some of the vents outside of the communications school here in middle. And now it's, you know, April. You know, I think we're recording on the opening day for Major League Baseball, which is a big national holiday for me and many other people in the Blue Raider office. Lovely spring day outside and excited to recap what was a very exciting winter and spring for the Blue Raiders on the hard court. Go D-backs, by the way. Who's your team? Uh, my team's the Braves because I'm from the South and very lame. Um, <laughs> I, think, I think the majority of people here. Are well, you, you know, it, it's tough when, you know, because I'm from North Carolina. North Carolina's got a professional sports team in every now every single major pro league except for Major League Baseball because we had an MLS team this current year in Charlotte. So we have an MLS team in Charlotte. We have an NBA team in Charlotte. We have an NFL team in Charlotte. And we have an NHL team in Raleigh. So if you like any of those sports as your fave, you can just, like, claim that team. But baseball, we don't really have anything. And it's yeah. very similar here in Tennessee. Tennessee is, I think, very similar where they have, you know, Nashville SC. they got the Predators, the Grizzlies, the Titans, but no baseball. They've just got uh, the Smokies minor league team. Oh, yeah, we got a lot of minor league teams, too. You know, my, my, for, I'm from Winston-Salem, so our local affiliates, the high A for the White Sox. Durham Bulls, obviously, is one of the biggest, most well-known minor league teams, thanks to the movie. They're AAA for the Rays. We got AAA teams in Charlotte, AAA team. I think that's the only two AAAs left, but we got a couple AA teams, lots of high A and low A teams. So you can watch a lot of pro baseball in North Carolina. Yeah. They're just it's just not the top top level, mm -hmm. which is unfortunate. But anyway, so this was our first season covering MTSU basketball. Uh, we both have our own little perspectives on it, and obviously you've had more experience covering basketball with your days at Wake Forest in North Carolina. Mm -hmm. I'm excited to see what you have to say about the team. We'll start with men for this part. The men's team. 21 game turnaround they were 26 and 11 and had that undefeated streak at murphy tell me a couple of your expectations going into this season well you, you know one of my biggest goals when i first you know joined the office here at middle tennessee in the athletic communications office and you know one, one of my tasks was to be the beat writer for the team since we don't get as much local media coverage from traditional media outlets like newspapers and uh, you know tv radio than we may, maybe did 10 15 years ago so part of that was like me trying just to get a pulse on like what people were feeling about the team. And, you know, football, football was kind of a, a mixed bag. You could tell that like they like there was a lot of players that, you know, people like, but also they weren't really you know pleased with the results by and large. But, you know, the bowl game kind of brought some people around to like, OK, we were injured a lot. So actually, you know, it was a pretty successful season. So, so that was an interesting first dynamic. But everything I was hearing about the men's basketball team while all that was going on in the fall was like, oh, you are not going to believe how bad this men's basketball program is. This is like, I mean, people were despondent about this team going into it. Now, basically having an outsider's perspective coming in and watching practices in the summer and watching practices, you know, while they're working out in the fall and stuff, I was like, this team doesn't look bad. Like, no, you know, from, the the high from the eye test <laughs> yeah. alone, you know they're yeah. a bunch of lengthy athletes. Mm -hmm. I was surprised at that prediction. Yeah, you know, last in the conference when mm -hmm. uh, CUSA preseason rankings came out. Well, and and, and to be fair to the to Freeman Weave, who's who did an excellent preseason rundown of all the teams in the conference ahead of time, and also the coaches of the conference that voted in that preseason poll. You know, there there wasn't a lot 
externally to like about <laughs> middle going into the season. You know, Don Sims had regressed pretty much every single year since his pretty much his sophomore season, which was the first time he really got like extended starting time. But you could even make an argument he regressed from his freshman season up until this point, basically, just in how effective he was on the court. Because while he was getting limited minutes as a freshman, he was very effective in what the role that Kermit Davis wanted him to do in that year. Yeah, I would argue this might have been his best college I, I think so as well. Yeah. And then, you know, you, you keep going down the line. Eli Lawrence had not shown himself to be the type of the defender and the type of sort of, you know, multi-level threat, you know, because he's got to get to the hoop and he can shoot a little bit. He, he hadn't shown consistent flashes of that at any point in his college career up to that point. He'd shown, a, he'd shown athleticism. Everyone knew he was athletic, and they could see that he could become that person. But this is the first year that he finally became that person. You know, Josh Jefferson, you probably expect to be, you know, a pretty good scorer for yeah, them. And, and, and that was, uh, you know, I think maybe that was maybe a, a miss from preseason evaluations is that he was clearly a good scorer at Wisconsin Green Bay, and he brought that over. He, he was the same type of scorer he was there that he is here. It's just here he also had more help, and he bought into a defensive system that maybe wasn't as prominent when he was with Wisconsin Green Bay. So that was another surprise. You have guys like T. Leonard, that's you know one of the highest-rated recruits we've had in many years just by national rankings. I mean, we don't get a lot of ranked recruits yeah, in, 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 in any sport, but particularly men's basketball and women's basketball. You know, women's basketball occasionally does uh, mm-hmm. just because they've been successful for so long. But, you know, T. Leonard was top, like, consistently top 300 on most major recruiting rankings. Mm-hmm. Um, uh, he is, ever since Zion Harmon from Western Kentucky, was basically not eligible because he went to, like, six different high schools and no one could figure out no. <laughs> his transcript. I didn't hear about that one. Uh, yeah, Teofiel Leonard was the highest-rated recruit in the entire conference coming into this season. That was a true freshman. He so was, what, like 103? Yeah, yeah. He, yeah as as like high that. as like, is a borderline top 100 recruit in some services. So, you know, tremendous fine for McDevitt and his staff to convince Teofiel to come in here. And, and also for, you know, for him to buy into what, you know, the coaches were telling him. And, he, I mean, he became an unbelievable bench piece for them. And then you just keep going down. Justin Buford is an incredible guru guy. DeAndre Dishman having easily the best year of his career, I Mm -hmm. think, particularly particularly after his his knee injury, easily the best year of his career. And, I mean, really everyone on the team got better and got better substantially. You know, when that happens, you know, those types of predictions miss. And I think it's a tremendous credit to the coaching staff for developing these players, for finding a system to buy in, and also for finding players that fit what they wanted to do. Because when I knew this season – beforehand was I was reading the threemanweave.com preview of Conference USA. And they mentioned sort of a throwaway line in there that Nick McDevitt's best teams at UNC Asheville were teams that pressed a lot and forced a lot of basically havoc play. Lots of turnovers, you know, prolonged possessions, stuff like that. And I saw what they were practicing in the gym where they were doing a lot of presses and not just like one specific type of press, like five or six different styles of oh, yeah. press. And I was like, this team's got the length to be really annoying to play. They're not going to be bottom of the barrel. I didn't think they were going to be East Division champs by any means, but I thought they were going to be, you know, easily a 500 team in conference just based off what I was seeing. And, you know, sure enough, they, you know, they got hot a little bit, learned how to shoot, figured out, you know, how to work together on offense and, and played into the depth. So where everyone was really feeling like they were contributing every single game. You know, I didn't even mention guys like Cam Weston, who was a huge piece from the Juco level oh, this yeah. year, um, who's really developed into a really good point guard that's basically only missing the outside shot in his game at this point. Yeah, Cam should be taking over that point guard role now that mm-hmm. Brown's going to be graduating. Yeah. He kind of gives me an impression of like a Rodney Stuckey. Yeah, Kinda yeah, a like little that bit. combo mm-hmm. guard that has the strength to him. Yes. Backcourt should be exciting because I expect T and Cam backcourt going Yes. Forward. I think, the, you know, the preseason predictions were not wrong necessarily. It's just a lot of things went right, and a lot of it went right 
not just because of luck, but because of the work that people put in. And I think that that leaves a lot of people in the program a lot to be proud of. Coach McDevitt definitely took this thing over. This is year three. Year four. This is fourth year. Year four for him. Yeah. And, you know, he won Conference USA Coach of the Year, Mm -hmm. which was very well deserved. You won't find a more passionate coach than McDevitt either. (laughs) I mean – some of my favorite moments of the year, you know, I'll never forget the time he punched the scores oh, table. I, 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 <laughs> <laughs> I don't even, I, and my favorite part about that is like when I think of McDevitt's passion, I mean, McDevitt does like to uh, d- discuss um, things with the officiating crew from time to time. And sometimes, you know, I think there was multiple times where we were teed up for hanging on the rim. That was very, a very quick whistle or something, or there was some point of emphasis that either he missed or wasn't communicated. And there was something, so he, he generates a lot of passion firing up the crowd after those moments. Oh, yeah. But the, my favorite part about the fact that the time he punched the screen is I think we were up like 20 against this team and trying mm-hmm. to press. And some dude just, I forget who it was at this point, but one of his players just completely messed up what they were trying to do. And he just <laughs> could not help himself. Yeah. It, yeah. McDevitt's awesome. So out of everything that happened, do you have a favorite storyline for this season? You know, we have Sims farewell tour, the turnaround with the wins, mm-hmm. undefeated streak at Murphy Center. What comes to mind? Well, I mean, I think it's 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 sort of an intersection. I mean, I, I with the undefeated at the Murphy Center and the, the turnaround. Um, because obviously, like, the raw win numbers extends far beyond our final home game. Our final home game is against Western Kentucky this season. But that moment is going to stick out to me for a really long time. Because, you know, Western Kentucky was a team that was expected to be one of the better teams in the conference this year, certainly one of the better teams in the East Division. And they, you know, they kind of had some injury issues. They, you know, like we said, a guy like Zion Harmon not being available to them obviously hurt their expectations um, and a couple other things. But, you know, they, they were still probably the second best team in the division um, mm-hmm. overall. I mean, they got that, that, you know, East 2 seed down in Frisco. And if we won that game, we we clinched the division. And it just, it was an unbelievable environment in the Murphy Center. And for me, it was the culmination of the people of Murfreesboro, the people of the university finally being like, okay, we're back. This is the next step to get back to where we were when we were consistently a threat to make the NCAA tournament every single year under Kermit Davis. Like, Like It felt like people in the area finally came out to that game and saw how good the team was and how well we played that night. And, you know, the, the Blue Zoo stormed the court. And, you know, Coach McDevitt got very emotional after the game on the court and even carried that emotion a little bit into the postgame presser. That moment just sort, of, it just sort of summed up really what this whole season meant, I think, to Murphy's World community, to the Milton State community, and, you know, to the coaches and players of the team. And, mm-hmm. <laughs> and so, I mean, I'm not going to, you know, forget the picture of Don Sims holding that East Division Championship oh, yeah. trophy on top of the scorer's table, just the sea of people on the court. Mm-hmm. Looking at, you know, Nick McDevitt holding up the number one sign. He just Some of the pictures, we, like, our staff got from that night are unbelievable. So that's what's that's what's going to make me remember about this team more than anything. And obviously they won a lot more games after that. Won a game in Frisco, won several in the CBI. But that, to me, I think just symbolized so much of what this program meant this year to so many people. You mentioned Frisco. How was that trip, and how was the Conference USA tourney? Well, Frisco was, was was interesting because obviously Josh Jefferson got hurt in that Western game. Yeah, um, I'll never not think if we would have had Josh. Mm-hmm. Yeah, you know, we. But we yeah, yeah. For, from my understanding, you know, pretty you know serious hip injury that kept him out of every single game after that. You know, he, he made it. He made a huge three to, to clinch that game basically, um, and put him. Up, I think he put us up four or something. Maybe put us up two, and then we, we just sort of made free throws from there on. But you know, he wasn't available the next two games. They lost at Ash Charlotte and then at Old Dominion, I think, to end the season. And then they went down to Frisco. Had a really tough assignment in their first game. Where they were playing a, a UTEP team that sort of took its time to get 
together, but it clearly started to gel under their first year coach, Joe Golding, who came over from Abilene Christian, mm-hmm. you know, and they pushed, you know, pushed us to overtime, but we took the game and there's, you know, really solid, gritty, classic defensive win for the program. And I think for a lot of, to the extent that there are national people within Conference USA, but the more conference-wide media that, like, pay attention to their team and then everyone else. I think that was the first game that they were like, oh, uh, this middle team's better than, like, it wasn't just an East Division thing. It was, you know, they, they've got some some moxie to them. Yeah, in those games without Josh, you know, mm-hmm. that's exactly the kind of wins they were. They were grinded out, defensive teams, mm-hmm. defensive games. Yeah, We didn't necessarily shoot the ball at our best, mm-hmm. but... That's kind of our style, you know. And, I mean, and then, you know, that UAB game that we unfortunately came out on the short end of in three overtimes, you know, maybe the best <laughs> game I've ever individually what, what watched. What a thriller. What a stressful thriller. I, uh, you um, know, for, for me at least, you know, I was sitting right behind the bench from that time. It, it, it's funny, I didn't even really sense stress. Yeah, no. I think I think it was more just passion. <laughs> it, was, it was just, the, you know, the both teams wanted to just find that last little bit to, to get over the hump. And then, you know, I think finally – the foul trouble started to even up on both sides because UAB lost a lot of their bigs really early because because they were fouling Dish. Like yeah. let's, let's be fair, um, they were they were fouling him, <laughs> and you know, and UAB probably had the best player on the court, Jordan Walker, and you know, so when you have the best player on the court that can make impossible circus shots from behind the arc, uh, that I can give you an edge. <laughs> I remember it was almost like Curry esque shot. No, yeah, no, he he was a gunner, um, and, and particularly in the second overtime, he was a gunner in my opinion. You know, they they just made a couple more plays. But I think Middle Tennessee came out of that with a lot of respect from a lot of different people that maybe had tuned out that particular program up until that point in time and, and thought, you know, okay, oh, you know, yeah, they won, you know, however many games they won in the regular season. But, you know, they're playing in the East Division. East Division doesn't have any, really any good teams, so they were just beating up on, you know, the teams that got to play twice, basically. And that game showed, like, oh, no, this team could play. And not only can they play, they're young and they're super athletic. You know, they're going to be dangerous if they can keep everyone together. Yeah, we'll see if that affects our ESPN. How many more? If we get any more games from them? Uh, I'm not. I'm not quite sure how the the CUSA media deal works. As far as I mean, like obviously we're not on any of the ESPN broadcasts usually, unless we're at like some tournament or something. But you know, we we might get a few more. ESPN Plus deals, I guess, but I think that that that, that might have more to do with you know, institutional because a lot of the ESPN Plus stuff is like stuff the team has to pay for as far as like putting a production truck together and other things like that. Yeah. You know, we'll see, but obviously, like the better we are, the more attractive we are, and maybe we'll get you know stadium comes in and wants to put it on or something like that. Yeah. It was definitely a fun fun team to watch throughout the years. So yeah, next up they did go to the CBI uh, championship game against. UNC Wilmington came up just short mm-hmm. in double OT. Elias King got injured that game, and with Jefferson still out, I think it just came down to our guys running out of gas, you know? Yeah, a, a little bit more. You know, what, what's kind of stunning about it is that, you know, we scored 90 points in two overtimes. and only had three players in double digits, you know. Mm-hmm. You know, Don Sims had 27, 14 of which came to the free throw line. Dishman had 17 and found out pretty early in overtime, so he, he probably could have gotten a few more. T. Leonard had 11, Eli Lawrence had 9, Tyler Miller had 6, Justin Buford had 8, Cam Weston had 6. So some guys you maybe expect to score a few more points weren't scoring a few more points, and he still scored 90. So pretty impressive. I think, you know, what I'm going to remember about both the UAB loss and the UNCW loss longer term is just like we missed a couple of free throws right there towards the end at certain spots that could have either put it in a – situation where they would be forced to take a tougher shot to tie or, you know, put the game out of reach, like, completely. And, you know, they were able to get one more bucket or something to, to, mm-hmm. to keep things going. 
And, you know, it's hard, you know, Don Sims made 14 of 16 in that game against UNCW. I think he and made he it. had that Hail Mary three. Yes, I mean, so, you know, I look at it analytically from a percentage ex- expectation, and 14 for 16 is not that different from what he normally makes. He makes 90% of his free throws. You really can't point to that specifically, but, you know, it's easy to point to that at it's times. It's the curse of the curse of the TV broadcast. Mm-hmm. You know, when they mention percentage, right before they shoot it, Mm-hmm. You know, it's tough. The free throws, you know, we're 34 for 46 as a team. That game against UNCW, maybe that's something to work on for those guys as they're doing their offseason stuff. I've already seen, you know, I'll yeah. walk through Murphy on mm-hmm. the weight class. I already see the guys lined up at the free throw line every time I'm in there. Mm-hmm. So, yeah, so, yeah. and that's going to be an easy thing to remember. But I think, with, like, with the CBI, I know there was some concern that the team would just come out and, and maybe be a little flat or, you know, be disappointed they're not in the, the, the NIT um, which could have been a possibility for them. I mean, our, our IPI was in the 60s. I think our net was, you know, almost just over 100, just under 100, I should say, you know, in, that, in that 90s range. So that's, you know, borderline NIT team. But when you've got some some auto bids from some regular season conference champs, obviously it's it's harder to get in. It's really hard to get in a 32-team NIT field. But to their credit, you know, they, they went down there and – particularly against Abilene Christian in Boston, you know, beat the doors off of them. <laughs> and, yeah. you know, Cal Baptist, I think they were, they were sort of adjusting a little bit. But, you know, gritted it out, got a win. And, you know, I think overall played really, really well. And UNCW also was an extremely veteran team. I think the three best players were fifth-year seniors. And so a leadership, I think, for my opinion, matters in college basketball. The fact that they were able to go that far and, it, and, and honestly just generate hope again within Blue Raider Nation. I mean, that, that's the most unbelievable part to me is just how how down people were on where this team was. And, I mean, it wasn't necessarily quickly, but how suddenly just as the games kept going, everyone got, everyone hopped on the bus. And, yeah. and now I, I feel like there's a lot of – genuine excitement about where this team could go next year and even beyond. I think it's safe to say expectations haven't been higher since their upset at Michigan State mm-hmm. back in 2016 in the NCAA tournament. So, you know, they just – they're losing a couple players, but they just need to replace them with some decent prospects at least, mm-hmm. and they'll be a scary team every night. And, you know, I want to go through all the players. You kind of alluded to it a little mm-hmm. bit earlier. Uh, just a final salute to, to this team, to the 21-22 Blue Raiders. We'll start with the starters, Donovan Sims, mm-hmm. arguably the best season of his college career, scored 1,000 points, so joined that mm-hmm. prestigious list of Blue Raiders, went 12 points a game, around three assists, five rebounds, really held the fort at the point guard position as one half of that backcourt. A steady guy. You know, Josh definitely, I think, had a higher ceiling as far as how many points he can score a game, but Don – Lesson you always want less than two turnovers yes. from your point guard, mm-hmm. you know? and, and and Don and Don could give you that mm-hmm. almost every single night out there, and you know he, he could slow the game down, he could get guys into sets, and you know and he could, he could score a little bit if he if he was left open. When I've talked to him, you know, in the past for stories, he talked a little bit about how he was sort of forced into a shot maker role right after you know Nick McDevitt took over because he was basically the only guy on the team that could take shots consistently. And they, so that was that was a part of the game that you know even going back to his days in high school here in Murfreesboro that was not something he was asked to do at the high school level really I mean he scored he averaged um, he's, I think when he scored a thousand points here he's like yeah I didn't score a thousand points in high school yeah, so yeah, yeah. you know that is it's pretty remarkable for him and, and Don's such a good guy that it was exciting to see him thrive in in this role now that he had a lot more help around him yeah uh, to to be able to take some of that load off and let him just be himself and I th- I think he did that well. 
this was the best college season he could ask for, you know. Mm-hmm. And next up, Josh Jefferson came in, transferred from Green Bay. He was our leading scorer at almost 15 a game and our best three-point shooter and made all-conference USA second team. Only all-conference honoree, I believe, from, from the Blue Raiders this year. Yes, Don got runner-up. I don't know if you Honorable want to mention. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I, you know, I, I consider the people on the teams there. And, you know, what one problem or one issue with with those types of awards for the, the style that we play, at, you know, this year at middle. Because, you know, middle, if you're looking at the, the roster, we have one, two, three, four, five, six guys playing at least 20 minutes, seven guys playing at least 21 minutes a game, 20 minutes a game. And so when you're, you have that many people playing that many minutes, you're not going to have the volume that a Jameer Young from Charlotte's going to have who's playing almost every single minute for them or Sule Boom for UTEP, who's the conference's leading scorer. Well, with it, the amount they we press, there's no way any other No, I know. It, it works really well for – but when you're, when you're talking about individual awards like mm-hmm. all conference teams, it, it's very hard to break into that because your counting stats are not going to be as high as they should be. But, Josh, I mean, Josh, you know, I think that's a credit to him is, is how you know much of a threat he was to other teams – I mean, really, you know, the UAB game when they play, when we played at UAB was like the only game I felt he was really like taken out of by another team, and you know, obviously they're able to get something going with that. <laughs> but yeah, every other game he's just a huge threat all the time, and that opens up opportunities for other people. And it, you know, I think he got better defensively as the season went on as well, and, and, and you know, maybe wasn't a plus defender, but was a consistent defender the whole time. So I was very pleased to see Josh. I think Josh is a tremendous example of, of how to make an impact on a program when you're coming in as a one-year transfer. Um, we, we've had a couple of those, fortunately, between both programs, which we'll get into yeah, a little, you bit, a little bit. mercenaries, right? Yes, yeah. <laughs> no, but as far as, the, you know, the mercenary one-year transfer type, you can't get much better than what Josh Jefferson did here. And you do, I think he's got a legit shot to play professionally if, the, you know, those health issues work out. Yeah, he declared for the draft, and mm-hmm. hopefully the scouting reports understand, you know, his stats and how mm-hmm. he accumulated them through the year. I could see him not getting drafted, but going off in the G League. Kind of similar to Chris Lofton at UT. Yeah, a little bit. You know, he mm-hmm. got signed by – he would always be on the Celtics mm-hmm. G League roster and – he would go off every summer, and he he would at least get, be given like a ten day contract mm-hmm. to see how he is in the NBA. You know, I, I see Josh's professional future if it works out more overseas. Mm-hmm. I, I think he'll be playing. He could play in Europe for quite a long time if he wants to. But obviously, the the NBA dream, he should pursue that first because obviously that's you know something there. But yeah. I yeah. I think he, if if that's something he wants to do, that's I think that's a door that could open up for him. Yeah, it's funny. I don't stay up that often to watch the second round anymore mm-hmm. or draft, but I'll be I'll be watching the 60th pick just to see if yeah. Josh gets some consideration. Yeah. Next up, we got Tyler Millen and Justin Buford. I kind of wanted to put them put together, those yeah, because they are. Just that interchangeable athlete, I emphasize that. David utilized their length and what he wanted to do, not only on defense, but in transition offense as well. Well, yeah, they're they're very big glue guys. Um, and, and they're glue guys, you know, I, that sort of, you know, rotated who was was in favor, I guess, as the key glue guy at any given point in time. You know, I think Tyler was probably a little stronger than Justin was. Um, so he would often, if, if they, every team is running a bigger lineup, Tyler would often be in there just because he could beat and bang a little mm-hmm. bit better. Um, Justin's an excellent passer. Um, and so he was often a really decent facilitator, secondary facilitator a lot of times of the offensive stuff, even if he wasn't as big of a shot-making threat as maybe Tyler was. What really mean just two, two guys that you need to make your team run and particularly make that press work and like you said their length caused teams a lot of problems right there in the middle of that court and you know not someone that was often in the 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 press conference at the end of the game 
but mm-hmm. somebody that was was very big and making sure this team worked well and was successful. Yeah, their stats don't jump off the page, but underrated players for sure. Every team needs a glue guy. And uh, now we got Eli Lawrence, led the team in steals. Really good perimeter defender. Mm-hmm. I know McDevitt really liked him on the smaller, quicker guards that gave Middle Tennessee trouble. If there was a kink to our defense, it was it was the small guards. Mm-hmm. You know, they were able to get around our team and somehow get to the paint. Well, I was going to say, J- Josh and Don are not really good individual defenders. They, they work well in team settings. They're really good working off pick and roll games and stuff like that. But as far as like one-on-one ISO stuff, mm-hmm. you, you, that's not a matchup you want. But Eli, yeah, you, you, you'll take Eli in an ISO situation as a defender for sure. Um, I think that that's honestly one of the reasons why he took such a huge step this year and became such a high-impact player is that he became – a much better defender. I mean, when I when I wrote a story on Eli, I think in February, I talked to McDevitt about you know what what's changed from his development from then to now, and what as far as how he stepped up. And he basically said that Eli, the Eli of the past, would take a lot of risk offensively, like to you know jump in the pass lanes for the steals, and you know, and that would get him out of position. But he he's learning when to take those risks now. Um, really, this whole team seems pretty. Discipline when it comes to not overextending themselves. Well, the say, say, say for know? one player, <laughs> and we'll get into him later because he because yeah, he because yeah, he, yeah. he can make up for it himself. But Eli, uh, I mean, I think even in in season, just got better defensively. I mean, and and started to really relish taking on the other team's best player. And you know, he I wouldn't say he's you know a leaky block to use a UNC reference type, or they he would just take him out of the game completely. But he was, you He'd know, give him trouble. He he was a plus defender that was annoying <laughs> to go against. And you know, the only times that he really let up is when he just got tired when he had to play a lot of minutes in the game. And you, you sort of saw that a little bit later in the year when they were having to play longer minutes in a shorter rotation. Yeah, he cramped up in a couple games. Mm-hmm. I remember, yeah. with the extended play. Mm-hmm. But and then, and then offensively, you know, there's a, a big stretch in the middle of the year where he just was in a funk offensively, and Josh and Don were picking up the guard load, I guess. Forum came Western a little bit as well, but I think around you know shortly after that, that road Western game, he just sort of picked it up from there mm-hmm. and was a tremendous offensive weapon. What do you think he should be doing moving forward to be even more scary? Because I, I think honestly he's probably the most streaky player on the mm-hmm. team. Some games he can have four points and two yeah. of twelve from the field. Other games he'll be three for three from mm-hmm. long range and getting to the cup, getting the free throw line. Well, I mean, really, it's just you, you've got to make one of your two – you've got to make your drive game or your three-point shot a very consistent threat. And so I've, I think you've got to take one of those two. I think he, he's a good shooter and he's a good driver. If he makes one of those two great, he's a much different player because then that will make the other one better by forcing teams to sell out to stop the other thing. If he becomes a really good driver and getting to the rim – then that's going to open up opportunities for him to get shot over people because they're going to be sagging off. Or if he becomes a really good shooter, then that's going to open up ability for him to drive past people. And he's shown flashes of driving to the rim. He and has, yeah. You know, based on the eye test alone with that lefty jump shot, mm-hmm. it's a good-looking jump. No, it so. is. So, I mean, it, so, I mean, it's just going to be putting some work on the gym this mm-hmm. offseason and getting better and, and not being satisfied with that. And I don't think he is. Um, I think I think he, he does want to be that, that combo wing. I can wreak havoc on both ends of the floor. And so I think he, I think he's got to figure out which one he wants to be. Does he want to be, uh, you know, three-point, you know, three three and D type wing, or does he want to be, you know, a drive type wing? Mm-hmm. Whichever one he decides, just just sell into that and obviously keep working on the other one. But, you know, the other one will come as one of those two becomes great. And next up is the big man down low, Dish, 6'6 <laughs> six, six center, 
but he utilized a lot of his strength to make up for you know lack mm-hmm. of size. Led the team in rebounds at five. Got all conference tournament team because he had some pretty big games. During uh, the, he uh, he was he, you can sta- you can stop him in Frisco, honestly. Um, I mean, I mean, he was going up against seven footers on that UAB team that could not stop him. Mm-hmm. Could not stop him. Well, those those <laughs> jump hooks, man. It, it, it's he just, shows. It, I didn't. I didn't see. It's that not just the jump hook. Just it's the it's the reverse layups. It's mm-hmm. the the rebounding. I mean. Th- I've never seen someone get more out of who they are than DeAndre Dishman did this year. It just just an unbelievable talent. You know, because people talk all the time about how how great he was before his knee injury, how athletic he was, and that's you know that's why he was a big at six six because he he could jump so much. And you saw flashes of that, particularly later in the years, he got more comfortable. And I know I think Dish expected this to be his last season in college, and so I think that that was part of a motivation for him. You know, he went through senior day ceremonies with Don and Josh as well. So I think that that motivated for him, but yeah, you, you couldn't stop him first. No one could. Do, no one could do it. No. And then let's talk about our our freshman, T. Mm-hmm. Leonard. Made all freshman team in the conference. Hundred dunks on the year was a human highlight for the Blue Raiders, and led the team in blocks over one and a half a game. Just an electrifying freshman that was fun to watch every time he was on the court. Well, I was gonna say, you know, he, he dunked so often that you almost you didn't get to see the other parts of his offensive game. <laughs> it seemed like it seemed like every, every time he scored it was dunk. Almost as you were dunk. Sometimes he'd shoot a wing three and make that. Maybe like one, two threes a game. Every time he put it up, I wasn't confident in it. But he he he'd make a couple usually, a couple you know a week basically yeah. during the game. He wouldn't shoot it often, but you know he just just an unbelievable athletic talent and just a perfect fit for what Nick McDevitt wants to do on both ends of the court. And I think that you really saw that was why he was so successful is that he was such a good fit for what this team was at this point in time. And you know. If he develops just like any part of his offensive game that's like consistent beyond jumping, like oh, if he like a mid-range shot, unbelievably unbelievable weapon. Post moves, unbelievable. Like consistent three-point shot, unbelievable. And you know he, he got a lot of stuff defensively in transition. That's always going to be part of his game. It's always going to get some some easy buckets that way. It, incredible inbound weapon. Oh yeah, they got that inbound play just straight alley to <laughs> tee. <laughs> just, I mean, more times than not, it was successful. You know, you know, you know the, the women's team has a play that I'll, I'll talk about that, that that they ran for Dorsar a lot that just seemingly could not miss the inbound dunk for T. Seemingly, every time they ran it, did not miss. And mm-hmm. <laughs> so I just in you know T T's also a, I think an excellent defender. He occasionally would make mistakes. Um, he would overcompensate, try to go for steal and, and get burned. But the, the fun thing about how athletic he is is that he could often make up for it. Yeah. He, he, he could get back. He could pin something. And, you know, I, 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 from what Nick told me about Eli when Eli was playing here early, it sounded a lot like how T was playing now defensively. Mm-hmm. And, you know, the fact that T was still pretty successful defensively, even with, you know, taking risks help side and taking risks for steals. If, he, if, it's, if his basketball IQ gets better and he gets smarter about that type of stuff, <sighs> watch out. Yeah, I think it's just a matter of understanding his own length. You know, and that quick first step he has as he builds more muscle and gets a little bit more strength, he's gonna be a scary player. What mm-hmm. do you think about his pro potential? I mean, he needs to bulk up a lot. I think for that, I mean, he, he he's got so much jumping ability, but he's so skinny. Mm-hmm. He, uh, you know, it's gonna be tough for him to last longer, I guess, in those professional seasons, um, unless he bulks up. And obviously, you know, the strength conditioning staff is gonna help with that. A lot of freshmen came when they first come into the program. So I think he will bulk up some as as he as he sticks around the program, as he hopefully sticks around the program longer term. But he's got a lot of intangibles people like, man. And so 
I mean, even if he doesn't bulk up and he's just still as athletic he as he is and has maybe a little bit better three-point shot, that's tough to turn down in the second round. Yeah. <laughs> it's a flyer. Yeah. Cam Weston, backup guard, really carved out a role, got some more minutes as the mm-hmm. season went along, tied with Don assists per game at 2.7. I really like him going forward. He's just like a supercharged combo guard. Well, though, Cam Weston, to me, is like the Hoopers player on our team mm-hmm. like, like if, you, if you're a guy that likes to play pickup that likes to that style of you know basketball where you just sort of pick up a ball and go cam weston's real good at that pick up the ball and go type player because he because he, he's so fancy with his dribble moves and effective with it he, he doesn't just do it just to do it he does it with a purpose and on top of that he's a, he's a really good defender on the wing probably our best guard defender that's you know not a wing type player because cam's not a wing like so, but of the three point guards, Josh, Don, and Cam, Cam's easily the best defender of all, of them. and just does a lot of things well. It's you know gets to the rim, you know is able to dish out of it if he gets trapped in those situations. Can be a little turnover prone at times, I think. But you know, it one thing he and Eli do really well is just sort of that harassment type of defending up and down the court where they just pick him up full court and not really try to do anything to them until they get across the half court line, but just sort of stick there. So they're forced to change directions and, and, and do other things to get up court. And I mean, he wore on people and he, people were frustrated dealing with that um, with him and Eli all year. And so, I mean, I'm, I'm super excited for him to get into a bigger role next year. Um, I, I do think he, if, if he wants to be a really great player, he'll need to improve his three point shooting. He was, uh, he's 32.8%. That's not three. That's not terrible. But yeah, that's why I kind of compared him to Stucky. You know, mm-hmm. Stucky was always a really good athlete, but mm-hmm. could never get his three-point shot down. But yeah. Cam has plenty of time. You know, yeah. he, this was only his first year. He's a sophomore, came from a smaller school, so this was really his first experience with division. I think, I think he was a JUCO transfer originally. Yeah. From JUCO to this uh, level of play, he's only going to get better as we go on. Mm-hmm. Too. I'm excited for him. I think, you know, he, he was one of the guys that, when I was looking at looking at just you know, the conference level conversation on Twitter and on forums and other things, he was a guy that other people keyed in on as a guy like, oh, this is why they're better. You know, they got a guy like him in there, and I think there's a lot of truth to that. Oh yeah, and you know, Jared Coleman Jones, he was supposed to be the backup center mm-hmm. over Christian Fussell. I think that's fair to say. Yeah. Uh, but he got hurt in the preseason, out for the year. Mm-hmm. Hopefully, he comes back stronger next season. Mm-hmm. Same thing with Jalen Jordan, still recovering from last year's in- knee injury. Yes. That led to Christian Fussell mm-hmm. and Elias King getting a little bit more runtime. What do you think of those two? Because uh, well, I think Fussell he would get in foul trouble early, but he did do a decent job holding. Well, 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 Fussell was key because Fussell was six ten. Is six ten. Yeah. So, he, so when, and there was a large, if there was a larger center on the other team, like Sharp for Western Kentucky, for example, was seven five. Fussell would actually do a pretty good job of containing him when he was in. Now, a little bit of that was, he, you know, he was sort of the, uh, well, you know, he'll play fifteen minutes and get four fouls, maybe. Um, but that's an effective way to defend a lot of the times so if, you, if you're coming off that bench roll and you have fouls to give, you know, you know, because he, he averaged, what did he average? He averaged 12, 12.7 minutes a game. So, you know, if you get four fouls in that time, that's not that big a deal if you're only playing that many minutes anyway. And so, obviously, you'd like to see that better. Um, you know, he, he has a little bit of a three-point shot. Maybe, should, should, maybe he should take it a little less often and work a little more. That's the key three. He loves it. It's just I wish he would go in a little bit more. You know, you know and you, you, see, you see why he takes it because it does look good yeah, out of the yeah. hand a lot of the times. But, it, yeah, probably needs to be a little more consistent with that. But he's just, you know, the type of bench center that you want. You know, he, he's got some of that stretch capability. He's got, you know, some, some good post presence just because of his size. 
And, you know, I think if he, if he starts to develop some of those post moves that maybe a dishman has, um, starts to develop his, his rebounding, his physicality a little bit better, you know, he, he could be a really key cog for this team for a really long time. But even, even then, if he's just, you know, what he was given this year, where he, where he was the eighth or ninth guy off the bench most games, that was exactly what the team needed in those times. So, you know, guy who understood his role and played it really well, I think, overall. And Elias King, he was a backup forward. Got a little bit more run. Mm-hmm. Again, it's kind of like a, a pattern with this team. Average the same exact amount of minutes from last year, 8.1, which I thought was kind of funny. Yeah, um, no, well, Elias, I think I think the issue with Elias early on, because Elias was easily the last person off the bench that would play, mm-hmm. uh, particularly when Isaiah Turner left the team. And so uh, Elias was always known as a really, as a really good shooter. And he, did, he does have a, a great shot, honestly. But he somehow just couldn't quite put the rest of everything together. Wasn't really always locked in on defense. Wasn't always, didn't always know where to be all the He's time. still raw, you know. Yeah, and some of that was just, you know, I think he, he hit a growth spurt maybe at some point. Just wasn't used to being, you know, maybe as big as, as he is. Because he's, you know, very tall, 6'8". Um, he was basically, you know, a two or three at that height. Um, but I think he, he clearly showed a lot of progress in practice. And that's what Nick McDevitt told me is that he showed a ton of, you know, progress practice and it, he might've been the best player in the CBI tournament for middle until, until he hurt his knee in that last game. Mm-hmm. Um, cause I mean, I'd look up and he'd be scoring 10 points, 11 points, you know, a game down there in, in Daytona and, and, and putting in incredible defensive minutes for them as well, using his length and, and, and being smart with it. And so, I mean, for me, for my money, from the start of the season to now, he's the most improved player on the team. And I think that's a tremendous teammate from what I could tell as well. Um, that never made it about him on, on the – even when he wasn't getting in the game on the sideline either. So I, I'm i really excited for him because I think he's got some, un, some still untapped potential. And if he plays like he did in Daytona next year, this team's going to be really scary. He scored 12 against Boston. He scored 10 against Abilene Christian. He was four for six from the field against Boston University, three for five from three, four for seven from the field against Abilene Christian, two for four from three. And California Baptist, he scored nine points. Um, he had four rebounds that game. But, yeah, I mean, just really quality men. I mean, he scored six points against UTEP, too, in, his, in the Conference USA tournament. So just, just – no, excuse four. Put four points in six, in six minutes. I mean, that's so – you know, the rest of the way he's doing, you know, six minutes against Coastal – Three minutes against Florida Atlantic, three minutes against Southern Miss, four minutes against UAB. But late in the season, he got some run and looked really good. Those were your 21-22 Blue Raiders. It was a fun season. And looking forward, you know, the players moving on from the program, Sims, Jefferson, Dishman, they leave a couple holes at the starting position. Mm -hmm. So what do you see the lineup at going into the next season? Do you see Fussell being the starter, or do you see them uh, recruiting a, a new starting center, or maybe Coleman Jones? Uh, I mean, I, I think it really depends on who they can find. Like, obviously, I think it, that if you want to attack the portal this offseason with somebody, um, you need to look at a big in in that spot. I think you, you need some more depth in that center position. And, you know, Conference USA doesn't have the tallest centers in the world, but there are some, you know, Khalifa, Charlotte, um, a couple others that really can, can cause some problems with their height. So if you, can, if you can find, you know, somebody coming down from the Power 5 level or maybe, maybe a lateral move somewhere, um, that's got some size, you, you should try to go attack it. 
Yeah, um, got first team all conference. Didn't yeah, Cleveland was Cleveland was the freshman of the year. Mm-hmm. Um, he he was he was, fr- he was all freshman team and the freshman of the year. So here's he's here to stay. Um, yeah. the sides go for season go pro. Mm-hmm. So I think I think that's going to be priority one at the moment because I think Cam Weston can take over the point guard role pretty consistently, and you just got to watch the turnovers. I know they've got a couple of JUCO guards that they're bringing in that they're really high on that maybe just take over that Josh Jefferson and Don Sims role. Cam Weston gets some more minutes, and they just sort of adjust from there. Um, obviously, team winners can get slotted into that lineup, I think, like they were doing down in Daytona. And we'll get Jalen Jordan back. No, and that's another thing. You get Jalen Jordan back, and that, you know, this team is Jalen Jordan. Holy cow. <laughs> but, you, you know, Jalen Jordan's a huge volume-type scorer like Josh. So, I mean, basically, it's like you, you get the same type of player. And, you know, one interesting thing about Jalen that, you know, was common to me is that, you know, what, one thing about this team is that they're on the court. I don't really think there was, like, a, a, an alpha-type leader that was, like, really super vocal. Eli could be that guy at times, but it took him some time to grow into that. So, Jalen was still that type of guy, even on the bench, like, throughout the whole year. I mean, you saw him. I mean, he was basically an extra coach um, yeah. on staff yeah. at times this year. So, getting him back and even getting him on the court, Cannot say anything more about that. I think it, that, that could be a huge piece for them, and it allows it allows you to maybe take some more developmental guys elsewhere in your class because you know you're gonna have that covered. Yeah, and forward position I think is preset with Eli, uh, Millen, Buford. I don't really see us doing anything unless some big stud from another school decides to transfer over here. No, you're you're gonna feel pretty confident about what you're gonna get out of those, and and, and they'll continue to improve it and everything. So I think. That's just a scary rotation. It's <laughs> a yeah. lot of length to deal with in Conference USA that a lot of teams don't necessarily have. You know, when we get a little bit more official news about the roster and the prospects we do sign, me and Sam will do another podcast talking about the new players coming in. But, yeah, that was our review for the men's team, the 21-22 Blue Raiders. Sam, you got any upcoming projects going on? Well, you know, spring football is in full swing for the Blue Raider football team. So I'm, a lot of my weekly features are of that man. Yesterday on, on Wednesday, April the 6th, I think we're recording this April the 7th, um, I had a story come out about uh, Shane Tucker, uh, Coach Shug, as we call him around the football office. Uh, he is the new wide receivers coach um, at Middle Tennessee. He was a former, I think, four-year letterman for Rick Stockstill from 2013 through 2017. Very cool. He's the third uh, position coach on the roster that played for Rick Stockstill as a player. That includes his son, Brent, who's the quarterback's coach and the passing game coordinator, as well as uh, Kenneth Gielstrap, who's the cornerback's coach and special teams coordinator. So really cool to talk to him, learn a little bit about his journey. He's been in a lot of different spots since he left here. He you know coached at Dodge City Community College up in the you know sort of the Kansas Juco route. Um, coached at Florida A&M most recently. Had some stops at Austin P. He was GA here. So hearing a little bit about his coaching path and about why Stock wanted to bring him back, I think was was valuable to hear. Um, further back, there's a, there's a fun story about uh, our new offensive coordinator Mitch Stewart, who's very much in the uh, Mike Leach air raid mold. I think mm-hmm. he is he's literally two branches away from like how Mummy himself um, <laughs> in the air branch tree, so air raid tree. So I am. You know, it was it was fun to talk to him. Uh, actually, I talked to him before I had down the Frisco, and so that sort of got out after that whole cycle. Um, but you know, so so some good football stuff out there. You know, if you're if you're interested in hearing about what the team's doing in a, in a pretty interesting spring ball season, they only got about sixty players available due to injuries, transfer oh, portal wow. stuff like that. Mm-hmm. Other than that, you know, you'll find me a lot out at Blue Raider softball field or Reese Smith Junior Field for uh, Blue Raider baseball and softball season right now. Um, base, baseball doing some good things in conference play softball doing some 
okay things in, in conference play at the moment. But they're both fun teams to watch that, that, that have different interesting storylines going on. So I, I'm excited to cover them. I, you know, as Chris will tell you, I'm a baseball lifer at heart. <laughs> um, if I didn't cut my teeth covering basketball on Tobacco Road, you know, maybe I'd be a baseball writer somewhere else. But, you know, that's one reason I love this job is I get to cover a large variety of sports. And so it's been exciting now that, you know, Championship Monday is done this past week. And so we're getting to, we're getting to see some new things after being so involved in basketball. Yeah, crossover season's coming to an end, pretty mm-hmm. much, you know. Yeah, and you can check out all Sam's great work at com. So thanks again, Sam, and we'll be back with part two to talk about the women's team. Thank you.